Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. As usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the very lovely Lucy Mangan. Hello. 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 Hello, Lucy. Hello. Hello, boys. You're not feeling very funny today, though, are you? I'm not. I'm furious. You're having a oh. really bad time. Why? Yeah, because I've had I've just had Christmas deadlines delivered to me that were from my editors that were technically and literally impossible. So we had to negotiate downwards from there, which never ends well for a writer. <laughs> Hang on, so have, you been, have you been given a task which is impossible? Surely you shouldn't be negotiating from that position. <laughs> <laughs> now that you say it. I can see that, yeah, but that's how it, that's how it went and but how it generally goes. But you're in a weaker position here, aren't you, because yeah, they're expecting the impossible from you anyway. Yes. So it's, I'm, I'm, we're recording this just before Christmas, and obviously anyone who's a, who's a journalist knows that on the rush-up to Christmas deadlines, things get squeezed and squeezed. They always did. But are you suffering from the fact that there's more and more television than ever before, and it's longer and longer than ever before? Yes, it's partly... It's, it's what it is, mostly, the problem now, is that it's no longer the case that you can and are expected only to watch the first episode of something that comes it's going to be right. shown that night and everyone's going to be talking about it the next morning you've now got to watch the bulk of whatever series is dropping and whatever platform it's dropping on uh, instead of you know just being able to watch in half an hour an hour of telly and then write your review yeah. you've quite often got the bulk of 8 hours to watch and you feel terribly guilty about if you don't give it a fair shot oh, so wow. you're, you're... so it's a real it's a lot of Hours. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not complaining that I'm, no. you know, it's not like being down the pit or anything. I'm very well aware of that. But <laughs> it's a little bit like that. It's, it's a little bit like that, especially by the end of 72 hours of Game of Thrones. But it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing because I think as a viewer, you feel this as well. I, f- I certainly feel that pressure. People say, oh, have you watched so and so? And yeah, yeah, I really liked it. Have you gone up to episode four yet? I went, no, I watched an episode like you would do. I watched an episode of it and thought it looked good. And you're not allowed to venture an opinion as a member of the public until you've watched season five. 
there's a feeling of sort of you do your homework and then you can say whether it's good or not. And people relentlessly saying, oh, it only gets good about series three. And it reminds me of that Victoria Wood line about, you know, eating muesli for breakfast, like having two jobs. <laughs> Television sometimes has somehow become laborious, you know, something to tick off your well, you're, you're, off your list. You're reviewing television as as a job, but at the same time, at the time, it's become like one of the one of the hardest jobs that we all have to do. And it, I was remembering this, obviously, when Clive James passed recently, and you, uh, the people were posting up reviews of his, and part of the charm of his stuff was he was dropping in for one episode of something. That legendary review of The Incredible Hulk, you got a real feeling that he'd only seen one episode <laughs> of it. And what does The Incredible Hulk look like to a man who's just dropped in for 35 minutes of it? It's much funnier. It seems... Like that, we've lost that. Yeah, that you get a kind uh, of childlike view, don't you? Yeah, you know, filtered through an extraordinary brain. Hey, if we're talking television criticism, can I can I recommend to anybody listening to this to find Dennis Potter's review of the Parkinson episode where Emu is the guest? Oh. <laughs> it is an extraordinary piece, and an ex- not only just not only an extraordinary piece of writing, but an extraordinary collision of names there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to say we're all going to have to take a moment there. Dennis yeah. Potter, Michael Parkinson, Emu, Michael, Emu. yes, and Rod Hull. Just there's a side note. Uh, yes, yes, uh, yes, and two of those work, and I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Who was your hero when you were younger? That you did you have like a? I'm going to ask that better. Did you have a TV critic that you read growing up and thought I want to do that? Um, yes, I mean because we got the Guardian, and so I read Nancy Mac Smith, which is an excellent uh, way to do things. Um, but I also read, I didn't come across A. Gill. I think because we never had the Times in the house. But I read. I was very fond of Alison Pearson in the Independent. It must have been mm. um, before she went. You know. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> can we say that? I doubt we can say that. Um, before she went all funny. Before she had a turn. Yes, mm. she's, she's um, different. Is it the same, Alison? But, the, Pearson? but you know, she the, got the tele- very, very serious. <laughs> yes, the television critic Alison Pearson was a great read. Yeah. Um, well, it was it was a thing that for a while became I think it's massively underrated the, the the importance of of the TV critic as a person setting the tone of a newspaper for a while. Sort of, you, you knew what kind of a newspaper it was by the TV critic. In the same way as the, the comic strip is always underrated as a way of telling... I know plenty of people who bought the Daily Mail for Fred Bassett, <laughs> and I know plenty of people who bought The Guardian because Charlie Brooker was in it, and or Catherine Flett for The Observer or whatever. They're the voices that then gave the paper a tone, and oddly... Well, they count as a columnist, don't they, in yeah. a way? But, um, but far more um, naturally light-hearted and naturally entertaining. What's the word? There's a sort of buffer zone, isn't it? Because you have to be talking about the telly that was on recently. Yeah. That actually gives you a, a liberation to to put your own put your own spin on it, and, and you can play about with it a, a bit because you've always got to keep coming back to that. So they'll let you play a bit more sometimes with the tone of what you're actually saying. Do you yeah. end up in, Do you end up in fights with sub editors about trying to be funny? Because obviously, traditionally, now, now that being the TV critic in something in something is an excuse to do funny stuff as well, and sub editors sort of come down and go, "But this isn't strictly factual." Yeah, there's, but that's that happens to every writer in every genre. Um, like I wouldn't say television criticism is pretty is um, particularly prone to it, but yes, every, every writer I know keeps a file of sub queries they've had. <laughs> oh really? Oh yes. man! Oh God! Um, writers everywhere, please <laughs> stick these all in a Dropbox somewhere where you can anonymise them. But I'm dying to read some of those. That would be great. Well, if you if you play your cards right, I might let you look at mine. Oh great! Mm-hmm. I'll show you playground. mine. You yeah. show me yours. <laughs> this, this degenerated very quickly, didn't it? This is what happens when you get people <laughs> from the filthy end of the paper and from the television, the entertainment section. In. Um, you started as a columnist, though, didn't you? You didn't start as a TV did. critic. Yeah, no, I was a columnist mostly. But... 
Yeah, for eight years. I it's, the best, it's the best job in the world, you know, you just get to write down all your jokes for the week. Yeah. So you think of it, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, I think, as we talk with people who make comedy and people who do stand-up, people who are writers and directors and actors and things. And I think it's an underrated area that people, the amount of times I have been most entertained in a week by a column, more than a sitcom or whatever that week, and it, but it's regarded as, as journalism and, as we were talking about sub-editors and things, that you're edited as if, as if you're meant to be delivering the same thing as the person who does the leader writing a little bit. It's, it's a very, it is a very underrated form, and it's, it's. I mean, Marina Hyde really is the kind of breakthrough person, and she's finally a being recognised properly for what she's been doing for mm. years because the um, Brexit and everything has given her such, um, such material, and also just such importance and, and such a profile. But there've been lots of people before her and, and still around her, I guess, who haven't yet got that recognition because it's a bit like people not recognising at the time, sort of P.G. Woodhouse maybe yeah. as, as, as doing something really quite clever or Victoria Wood being really something special. Yeah. Can, I, um, can I bring in the word humorist here? Because ooh. I would argue that that's what Marina Hyde is, isn't she? Because if Alan Corran was a humorist, then Marina Hyde is a humorist, isn't she? It's the kind of people who used to be in Punch, that kind of thing. I think we've lost. Because Jeffrey Willans, who wrote Molesworth, was a Punch yeah. writer. They were all humorists. Yeah, they're, they're basically people who basically would make a living writing funny columns for Miles Kington, funny columns yeah. for magazines and papers, who were enormously popular and their compilation books would sell loads. I, I always lumped Clive James in with them because mm. they were in the library next to each other in the humour section. 721, I think, Dewey Decimal, was a uh, humour. Whoa! Hey, Whoa! I'm bringing out the big guns We've today. got there! Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it, actually, librarians are going to find up and correct me. I bet I'm wrong. I'm about um, to give you... I'm about to start <laughs> reciting the Waitrose PLU deli counter numbers if you're not very, very careful. Can you do it? I, I still like know, tomatoes? Uh, no, I can, do, I can only really do Brunswick ham anymore, which is number 10. That's brilliant. Skills oh, that you yeah, still have. my first job. It's really good, isn't it, Brunswick? Cow? It's, it's lovely. lovely. It's, yeah. you know, it's moist, it's consistent. Yeah. And it's number 10. And it's not, it's not ever jellified, no. which is key in a ham. It's German. <laughs> yep. yeah. You're listening to Rule of Ham. <laughs> <laughs> Finest ham review podcast. We should just do numbers you remember for your first jobs. Uh, but there's a, I think... I can be... do my number plates, obviously. I think we can all yeah. do my number plates, can't we? No. Oh, God, no. God, you, God, are, you? you are boys after all. Oh, no, I can't. Yeah, I, don't, no, I, I, don't, I don't care about cars, so I can't remember mine. No, it's terrible. No, and I've never had one. So. Yeah, there's a bit of my brain which is. I mean, though, though you have got a huge supply of passwords if required. If you can remember number plates. Oh, yeah. That's true. I never thought of that. There That's you go. Idea. Now I know all your passwords, as long as I can <laughs> find out your number plates. Dewey Decimal, cold meats and top tips. Well, I mean, weird, this is, <laughs> this is everything this fucking episode, isn't it? Who uh, <laughs> wants to do a song? <laughs> Hello, the Memory Police here, just dropping by with a small correction. 721 in the Dewey Decimal System is, of course, as we all know, architectural and structural materials. Comedy and humour would be at 827, further along, probably a couple of shelves, maybe a whole stack. That's where you'd find no more curried eggs for me, Alan Coran, up to you, Porky, that sort of material. And if some 16-year-old Saturday boy with a trolley full of books needing shelving is mistakenly putting structure where comedy should be and comedy where structure should be, that may explain a lot about these podcasts. But being a humorist, being that kind of person where you write a column and its, it's principal purpose is to amuse, seems a really odd thing. Marina Hyde being a perfect example of this, that at a time when a lot of people don't consume their news through the news anymore. You don't necessarily buy a newspaper, you get linked things by people. Weirdly, I am surprised how much I am kept abreast of current events by people sending me columns 
rather than news clippings. That it's already been pre-digested and pre-outraged by Frankie Boyle, by Marina Hyde, by <laughs> Mark Steele, by someone, uh, by Rod Little, for God's sake. We sent things and they're, mm. they're, people are already angry about something before you start reading. But you're getting to the point now, you see, where, where I've, I've argued this with many editors, often in an attempt to keep my job, um, <laughs> that increasingly what's needed in a world where literal information is free and, yeah. and cacophonous and undistinguishable and and everywhere are people who can write it up in a way that adds value. Now, that yeah. might be through absolute, you know, exquisite expertise or in a way of, you know, making it funny, making it stand out, making it palatable in the way that Marina does. Yeah. She's definitely come for an audience who are used to consuming their news through John Stewart or mm. through John Oliver or through Charlie Brooker. Those yeah. people who where the, where the response to that is basically, I'm used to not knowing what the news stories roughly are, but sitting and nodding sagely along while someone goes, and then in so-and-so, and you go, yeah, I knew about that. No, you didn't know about that. The first person who told you about this news story is a comedian or a columnist. That television is full of people who are basically doing columns down the lens. And I suppose that then newspapers Well, that's how I always think up. of columns, because I used to do stand-up at university. And when I started writing columns, I, I, I realised, oh, God, it's just, it's just stand-up written down. That's, that's why I like oh. it. That's why, that's why I've got the job, I think, because that's how I naturally go. That's very interesting because it's all to do with, I suppose, being a... It's not about writing a sitcom or a book or something. It's also about not being able to work with other people, of course. I was about to say, it's about having the conch. It's very much about not... You've got the conch. You've got And I'm keeping it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a one-way conversation. It is you talking at someone like stand-up and a Mm. column's the same way. Here's my Mm. opinion. I'll deliver it as funnily as possible and you will listen. Yeah. I never even... Again, I used to get into trouble for this because I never really thought of it as, as a chance to put an opinion across. Oh. It was all about how you could get as many jokes into, you know, round a, round a news story as possible. I don't have any. I, know, I mean, I was very aware I have opinions, but I, I'm, they're no more legitimate than anyone else's at the paper or, or out of the paper. So I was only ever, I think humorist is it. I, sorry, I'm just, I'm just self-identifying here for, in a new way. That yeah, it was. It's all about finding a, the right weight of story that could bear the jokes oh, and the really? length, and that I wanted to do. It was never about getting my point about whatever the issue was across. And depending who I worked for, I used to have to make more effort to put in a you know an opinion and a controversy yeah. and a or whatever. Whereas other other places and other editors are happy for you just to riff on stuff, and they think that's fine. Especially when I was at the Guardian Weekend magazine was was yeah. the ideal place because that's you know it's the weekend. It's, it's a colourful, shiny page. All these things matter. You can just riff. I did a whole thing once on a, a donkey in a, in a village that they were now using instead of the postman to go up and down um, <laughs> their, their very hilly village yeah. and deliver the post. And I was like, it's brilliant. And it works on, you know, as I understand, it works on a salt lick injection system. And, it, you know, and it just it was just that. It just all... What's you know, the, one donkey, what's 700 words. What's the smallest thing you've managed to make 700 words? <laughs> this, this is um, always a columnist pride. Yeah, uh, 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 a toaster, cheap, That's... cheap toaster. Yeah. Someone said you were allowed once to write the column about how you've got no ideas for this week's column. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Fry did in his yeah. uh, his have Telegraph you, have you done column. That yet? No, I haven't. But I've always kept it. I've always yet. kept it in my back pocket. <laughs> I'm very, you very much write aware. It. Just any time, you know, just, just have it ready, yeah. like, like an obit reel. Sling <laughs> <laughs> out in the event of an emergency. Uh, this is one of my. I, how many columnists there actually are who keep any in the bank? I. I don't know. I must be a vanishingly few because it's always, you know, two o'clock on the on the 
on the day. You've been thinking about it all week and then you've just got to write it. You so rarely write one in advance or just to have. Um, obviously, stand-ups are a, different, a very different thing because they tend to have a set of... They've worked and worked and worked and mm. the material uh, gets better and better and then calcifies into a, like a tight 10, a tight 15 or whatever. And they repeat the same material again and again. Whereas what you've got as your job, but once uniquely in comedy is working all the time to do the funniest thing possible and then tomorrow you can't use any of that again. No, it's fish and chip papers as well, yes. It's disheartening. It's disheartening. That's a huge rate of material. But, yeah, it's... It's It's more like improv than stand-up almost. It chews up stuff, yeah. It's like... Because it's like putting it on telly. It's just gone. You You can't do it ever again, except without it ever being seen by that many people or repeated... Yeah, in itself. There's, there's no. I suppose the odd thing growing up with things like the Crystal Bucket being books of TV reviews, thinking, oh, this is forever. Mm. And then now reading those books of TV reviews that, that I grew up with and kept in the loo, you look at them and go, I don't remember any of these programs. Weirdly, the the the, the programs have left a sort of a ghost, a shadow, like a Hiroshima figure on a wall. But the, the the critic and the criticism has stayed, and you can triangulate what the program was mm. by how angry it made the person. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite a nice way of, of commemorating. But they are supposed to be ephemeral; it's supposed to disappear. Yeah, like the TV, the endlessness, as Mitchell and Webb called it. Television is the endlessness; never stops, rolls on, requires occasional comment. <laughs> Beast needs feeding. God, it's gone to a dark place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah. yeah, it was much more fun. Or the ham. What you brought in today is something really interesting because it relates to your saying that you had tried stand-up or started off doing stand-up. And you brought in what I... Oh, no, my cousin. This is one of the two or three stand-up routines I know off by heart. Tell us what you brought yeah. in. I've brought in what I still think of in my head as Matt's tape, and I'll, I'll explain <laughs> that in a bit. But it's it's Steve Martin's wild and crazy guy stand-up show in I don't even know the details. It's 1978 or nine. Okay. Okay, everybody. Oh, Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, you people are tired or something? Can't sing along. <gasps> But it's the one in his white suit and he's not he's still just a dark grey hair and in this massive, massive venue that I don't even know what what's the venue? The you know Enorma Dome. The, the Enorma Dome in, in San Francisco, isn't it? <laughs> Wait, I was wondering, I was hoping someone would know what the venue was. I, I don't I'm think it was ever made clear. It's was it? literally he is a white man with an arrow through his head in the largest it, space on earth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yes, they may, maybe they just put a roof on Idaho. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's San Francisco. He's, he's basically it in, is San Francisco, it's a heartland, yeah. sort of homeland Californian gig for him at the height of his wild and crazy guy, white suit. He is their guy at the height of his fame. He's sold. 1.5 million of his first album, million and a bit of his second album. He is just the biggest stadium stand-up. 
and this is his show recorded. It was put out on a VHS that was tagged Homage to Steve. <laughs> yeah. That's how I saw it. Um, and it came with a, with a, 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 the short before it, the, his absent-minded waiter short that he put, not nominated for a, a short film Oscar and a little film at the beginning, as always in American stand-up specials, where he, there's a little film and he's talking about his stand-up techniques to a crew of astonishing people. Uh, and then you get to see him do his show. Um, so why is this Matt's tape? Um, because I, I'd come across... I, I knew who... Steve, well, I got to university and I knew who Steve Martin was um, because somehow I'd seen... When I was very, very young, I don't know if this was would have been at the time when he was promoting himself it would have been very early if so but promoting himself in the UK on the Michael Parkinson show I think or maybe Wogan where I'd seen this guy with this very young guy but with the graying hair already and he'd come up and said he said I have you seen the price of carpeting these days I'm not paying that for carpeting you know what I did I bought two yards of carpet and when I go home I strapped them to my feet (laughs) and I was like (laughs) him funny well, with prices today, I wanted to buy some carpeting. You know how much they want for carpeting? $15 a square yard. And I'm sorry, I am not going to pay that for carpeting. So what I did, I bought two square yards, and when I go home, I strapped them to my feet. But that was when I was, you know, really young. Um, and then he, you know, kept cropping up, obviously, because in the 80s he was doing all his his best films, I guess. A little, a little um, run of, almost like the Carl Reiner films, The Jerk, yeah, Man the with Brains, uh, Man with Two Brains, Man with Two Brains, and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. That's yeah. your, your sort of golden yeah. years of Steve Martin just being stupid films. Yeah. And then I got to university and there was this guy there called Matt Holness, who was a very nice guy, you know, but Steve Martin was his um, hero and he was teaching himself to play the banjo like Steve and all the, all <laughs> wow. the rest of it. Um, and he became very good. And, of course, as Matt Hollis, he went on to do Garth Marenghi and all the rest of it. But he had these uh, tapes of Steve Martin, which were actually very hard to get at the time because, right. you know, we're talking 25 years ago, children. Mm. And uh, more than 25 years ago, God help us. And there came a point where I had a very bad time at university, a very bad experience, and I had a lot of trouble um, sleeping and concentrating and all the rest. And I was in quite a bad way. And, and um, Matt eventually came up to me and he said, he said, would it help if I if I lent you my Steve Martin tapes? You could you could you could listen to them every night, and and they they help they they soothe me. Once you get to know them, you know they they really help. I think they might help you, which was just the kindest thing wow. anyone you know had done for me. Amidst a lot of of kind acts acts, I was sort of the recipient of at the time, um, and so he did. He lent me these precious tapes, and every night I listened to to them. There were two or three of them, but the one I remember and played most. Uh, was the wild and crazy guy? That's album um, two. I think. I think it's the second one. Yeah. I think it's. I think it's. Let's get small. Let's get small. Let's get small. <laughs> and, <laughs> which is the best title. Let's, let's get, get small, small and then wild and crazy guy and then comedy is not pretty. I think. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, so they were my sort of salvation and and then later on I got I managed to get hold of a VHS tape and actually put the mm. pictures with it and just it. So I'm very very fond of it as well as kind of admiring it and and just laughing hysterically. I somehow it. can't imagine it as an audio-only experience, having only seen the video version well, of his, it. Well, the, the producer, he was offered it to... The, the guy who produced the first album said, there's no way this is going to work. This guy's a visual comedian. Mm. Mm. And they, they put it out, and Let's Get Small. It's got lots of moments in it where there's just people laughing, you don't know what's at. Yeah. And, it, and Let's Get Small shifted, like one and a half million units went to number one. And the producer came back and said, get me more of those visual comedians. <laughs> <laughs> clearly it worked. Um, I think he's, he's... One of the things I think that I love about Steve Martin is he is a brilliant mixture of the verb 
verbal and the visual. Mm. And he's a writer, he's an ex-writer. Mm. His first employer was Mason Williams, the guy who did Classical Gas, the song. who was one of the head writers on the Smothers Brothers. Hmm. And he said, I'll get this guy in, because uh, Steve Martin came from a folk music background thing, so they obviously bumped into each other somewhere. Mm. Brought him in to be a writer, thought it was funny, um, and paid for him out of his own money. So Mason Williams said, I'll pay you for some jokes, and basically he owes his career to, to this classical guitarist. Um, and he comes out of that background, and he's, but he's a writer first, and he was a verbal gag man, putting gags for Sonny and Cher shows and things like that, the classics of counterculture in the hippie scene, doing all the gags for those big entertainment shows. And when he goes to do stuff on stage, he starts to become a clown, a physical clown, and he starts to put the two together. But he definitely works in both registers. And the joy, I think I saw this VHS tape after seeing his films, I think, and I didn't realise how brilliant he was at this and how weird and how unusual. Yeah. And it wasn't like stand-up I'd seen before because he doesn't do any jokes. No. <laughs> it's just no. weird shit. And it's remarkable. It's like he's thrown the rule book out and gone, most of this might not work, I don't care. Seriously, I do work with the SPCA a lot, and uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on now, uh, like in Mexico. Some people think it's a sport. I happen to think it's cruelty to animals. I'm talking about, of course, cat juggling. But it's full of these... I always think of him as just being full of kind of broken arches of, of comedy, because he, he goes so far and then breaks it and doesn't complete the arch, or he, or he you know, comes out and suddenly he's at high point and yeah. slides down the rest. Mm. And it's just... Is wonderful. Okay, good. Now, let's repeat the non-conformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be different. I promise to be unique. I promise to be unique. I promise not to repeat things other people say. At the same time, it's much more sort of thought through, much more structured like than, than someone like Vic and Bob or yeah. something. It's not it's not surreal in that sense. Because he, 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 he has he, that he's whole... He's broken it deliberately. He keeps breaking yeah. it so you don't know what to expect, but the audience are waiting for the laugh they're expecting and they get a different one. Yeah, whereas whereas Vic and Bob, that kind of stuff, or, or even the goons, is much more just a, a sensibility at play and, a, and, a, and hmm. a, an approach that they just all happen to have... Yeah. ..to be in sync with. How many people have cats? One, two, three. OK, ten. Now... Let me ask you this. Do you trust him? Because he's, you know, as well as being a, a sort of verbal, he's, a, he's quite an intellectual. Yeah. Steve Martin, you know, he read philosophy at, at um, university and got very into it. And he's clearly, you know, with his novels and everything, he's a very cultured, clever guy. And so he knows far more what he's doing or he's conscious much more of what he's doing. Because he has some interview or, or maybe one of his books saying that he was just wondering what would happen if you kept denying people the release of tension that, that yeah. traditional jokes depend oh, on. Right. And and what what would happen if you if you just kept postponing that moment? Like, it would have to come out somewhere. What would happen? And well, so that's the at, genesis of his At the beginning of Let's Get Small, one of the first routines on Let's Get Small is him doing not the jokes but the rhythm of a Vegas comic. Mm. He does an extended riff. He goes, if you go to Vegas, you go and see this. And it's just bad. Just, just gibberish. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Johnny Duke, let's bring him out. But it's got the rhythm of, of comedy, and he's going, This is what you'll get with a song, and then down to the. And he does that to say, I'm not going to do that because I'm aware that you are just laughing at the rhythm and shape of this, not at any of the material. So I'm, I'm beyond that. 
But one of the first routines he ever does for, for, the, for public consumption is him saying, well, I could do this. And it would go, yeah, da 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 He's got the rhythm. We can have the new hypothetical. OK, thank you. It's good to have a little bigger than that. I don't even know what I like to do. I got the gambling jokes for you. That's it. What do you want to do? <laughs> he's got the he's got two advantages as a as a technical comedian. He's a, mu- a musician mm. and a magician. Well, his two things. He started out doing stage magic and playing the banjo. His early billing posters he used to give out when he was playing the Troubadour and things, which is the the venue that like Warren Zevon on the Eagles and Buckingham Nicks used to play. So he played rock venues, and his his billing used to say just your ordinary banjo magic act. <laughs> Without mentioning comedy at all, he was just there as a banjo magician. But because he's he's into rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, magic and banjo require endless practice. One of his first jokes, is he, yeah, he plays the banjo at the beginning of, the, of his early sets. First thing he does, and he goes, "Hey, this guy is good." And that's the statement of Steve Martin. You go up there and you go, is he just going to be stupid? No, he's good. He's reassuring you he's good. He's rehearsed this. This isn't an accident. The punchlines aren't missing by mistake. He's left yeah. them off deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> what he also what struck me, certainly watching the, the, the visuals, the, the, the tape and re-watching it now on YouTube, is how supremely and solidly confident he is. Yes. In everything. Mm. He is so on top of the room or the the hangar or whatever he's playing um uh, himself his <laughs> his physical movements his his set his material it's all immaculate but he is so unshakable and unflappable yeah. he's just the most confident thing i've ever seen walk out onto a stage and he's filling that room mm. it's only him on stage in a spotlight yeah. that's it apart from one brief appearance where henry winkler arrives holding some pyramids <laughs> um but it's that's, just that's, that's, that's the standard climax for any <laughs> one man stadium would, show as he would come <laughs> fonds with egypt um <laughs> it, apart from that it's just him in a spotlight but he is doing the most enormous performance it's such a big performance that's where the and white suit so came physical. from he got the white suit so he could be seen yes, from the back he was, of stadiums. He was worried about. That's great. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. And your thing when we we, we did a we did an episode on here about um, Eddie Izzard with Dara O'Brien, and Joel said the thing about Eddie Izzard is by the time he come to his second show, he had his silhouette, so you would know him if you saw him in silhouette. You go, oh, it's Eddie Izzard, that isn't it? And and boy, Steve Martin got his silhouette here. Hasn't arms he? You out. know his shape, you know, and the, the the things that he's doing with his arms constantly. <laughs> If you haven't read Born Standing Up, his memoir, it is beautiful. It's really short and really beautifully it's written. great, isn't it? But he says in it, he got fascinated very early on by an E.E. E. Cummings quote. Uh, and he said, I didn't understand it for 10 years until I've been doing stand-up for 10 years. And the quote is, E.E. E. Cummings said, someone said, why are you a poet? And he said, because like the burlesque comedian, I am abnormally fond of that precision that creates movement. And he said, that's it. He said, it was all about saying, if I get this precise each word weighed, each gesture weighed. And he said every word had to come with a movement that went with it. He's constantly aware that people are watching him, not just listening to him, which a lot of stand-ups takes them years to get that sense of what movements are you doing at the same time. But I think that's because he's a magician. And magicians are always aware, aware where their hands are. And, yeah, and as sight is a, lines and all sorts of as things. As is a musician, you're aware where your hands are while you're performing. And he's got all those movements that, that come with great showmen of any sort. And he is definitely a showman up there. And it's, that confidence is part of it. He's alpha. 
He's a goofy guy, but he's alpha male. I mean, he looks like Harrison fucking Ford. He well, this is so this, beautiful. Yes. This, yeah, he's so gorgeous. That, that, but is, the, is it the fourth album where he's got one LP of banjo instrumentals and one of him? And on the front, he looks like a member of the Eagles. He's all beard and denim jackets. And you go, Jesus Christ, you're a beautiful man. But he's come out and he just looks like he's in charge, mm. probably of humanity. <laughs> he's just like, oh, that's our best guy, that guy with the arrow in the head. <laughs> yeah. You, no, it's complicated, but just stick with it, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. My, um, my, my favourite line in Born Standing Up, which I committed to memory because I laughed so much at it, is um, where he says, uh, and I don't know whether he's ever said this out loud, um, but he says, I've, I've learned in comedy never to alienate an audience, otherwise I would be like Dimitri in La Condition Humaine. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the same guy who, you know, yeah. takes the arrow off his head and goes, oh, and enough of this and nonsense. And then. I'm sorry, I've degraded myself. And I will never ever wear something like this again. His face on the table and he sees a pair of bunny ears on the table yeah. and he's like, he's like gazes at the audience <laughs> and gazes back, back at these things and then puts them on and goes, Okay. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. talk about why this is comforting and why it would deal with all anxiety because I think it's a very antic manic performance to go and I find this soothing as well and I think it's because it's happy he's happy to see you mm. he's happy there's no himself. cynicism to it's it, so which is childlike he's know, like rare. a children's entertainer he's got the props yeah he a children's entertainer would bring to a children's party yeah. but he's doing sex and pot jokes but he's brought the equipment. <laughs> that cat was the best fuck I ever had. <laughs> oh, that's great, that, isn't it? Isn't that great? Oh, one? no, come on. No, I mean that. Okay. The other one I like is his riff about being rubbish with money that just comes up every now and then. Where he, he's got the handle of a petrol pump at one point. Oh, he's God. Got... <laughs> See this? I got this for five bucks. Ha, ha, ha.
that's I can't work out why that's so brilliant. <laughs> it's because it's the thing, he holds it up and you go, why have you got the hand? Yeah, the you wait and, and you it, wait. And he's got the audience. He's got a stadium audience asking that question. And then when he goes, this cost me five dollars, and they're going, and the rest of the anecdote, and he puts, <laughs> it, down puts it down and moves on. It's just there's a warmth and a goofiness to it. He's technically shed himself and thrown away all the props you would use to become loved or to do simple mm. in front of a brick wall in a comedy club material and replace them with stuff that is oddly for an avant-garde comedian incredibly universal which is why he ended up being a massive international star is everyone loves silly and there's no there's no barriers to this this is all just mm. daft well i don't know what to do now I don't like to repeat, and yet the audience is demanding that I do it. I'll tell you what I do. I'll make a compromise. I'll make balloon animals, but I won't blow them up. And he's the idiot. He said a lovely thing as well. He said he started telling jokes and realised that the jokes were much, much funnier. Instead of saying, a guy walks into a bar, he said, I walked into a bar and made himself the idiot in the joke. And then people laughed more, and he went, oh, I'll be that. I'll be the jerk, the jerk from the film, hmm. the jerk. I thought of a religious experience I had earlier, about six months ago. I was at home, and an angel appeared before me. And it's so much fun, because the best thing to do, if an angel appears before you, you try and poke your hand through him. It drives them nuts. Whoa! Come on! Yeah! He made himself the subject of the comedy. He's this clever idiot who, who literally stands up there with... with Bunny is on. Who just wants to meet a girl with a head on her shoulders. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, it's next. next. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps dropping accents for no reason as well. He did that routine with Dan Aykroyd where they're both Czech playboys and he's always in that mode. For some reason it excuses him being sort of, when he's doing his stuff where he's being a bit sort of, uh, of creepy towards women, he does it in that voice and oddly you go, oh, he's just goofy. It makes everything harmless. He's never like predatory or sexual yeah. like that, which a lot of the sort of the SNL comics, there was a sort of mm. seedy sex and drug sure. side to them that felt a bit dangerous. He feels so safe. He's a wild and crazy guy, but you're completely safe with him. And even even when it, when he does do any kind of women's stuff, I'm noticing this again with the rewatching it in her current climbs. I can't think of a time when he's it actually ends anywhere near like you like you fear it will it's always yeah. you know I like to me to go with the head and show that's why when I take her to a fancy restaurant every head turns except her she has no neck you know that's <laughs> that's not a joke against women in any way but when he's doing uh, his finger the, 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 the finger banging uh, uh, mime and you go oh this is a bit nasty and then you realise it actually literally is he's just going to get a girl home and then just do finger games <laughs> like literally going to put on goggles and do shadow puppets <laughs> and things it's all rendered completely harmless um, like when he's doing balloon animals and he makes a balloon venereal disease <laughs> <laughs> this VHS by the way came with a free balloon animal kit did it? I found one on eBay earlier on when I was just looking for oh, things did you buy it? I'm going to afterwards unless someone buys it I, I, I can beat you to it because this is a recording right I'm buying the balloon animal <laughs> how kit how much is it? how much is it going I for? I don't I can't remember it how much what, oh no how much would you pay? to be honest it is a bag with a balloon animal in but it did come with the homage to Steve D maybe I should have it maybe I should have confidence thing's interesting. He talks about this and he said that he worked out, the phrase he used, he said, the audience has to believe that I don't care if they laugh and that the act was going to go on whether they laughed or not. Mm. And that 
I think most comics you ever talk to so that's the key is it, when you're doing stand-ups together and look like you're not going to come off the stage whatever the audience reaction is mm. and he's got that completely yeah but I've never seen it so I mean obviously that's that's key to any performance going up, but I've never seen it so thoroughly believable as when you know he does just walk on there and every cell every fiber of his being is just and why wouldn't you, you know you're, you're walking out, I guess into that stadium you yeah. look like Steve Martin you you've you can do everything you can and you know you're capable of even more i mean look what he went on to do in the next yeah. you know mm. 10 20 30 40 years but he's it's odd because he's doing you'd think that if you were doing something where this all to do with confidence and having the audience in the palm of your hand that a lot of avant-garde comedians and he described himself as avant-garde he said it to his girlfriend in a letter once he said I, I, the, the only thing i can do is go avant-garde it's what i want to do and he's doing what certainly in the late 70s was avant-garde weird comedy normally that's alienating you're kind of going to the audience screw you i'm entertaining myself i'm pleasing myself but there's not a minute of this where he's not clearly delighting the audience and he's not happy it's really generous it's not that's because most avant-garde stuff is just dicks dicking about they've got no there's <laughs> no there's no underlying because there's no there's no trying to show off or be smug about how clever he is which is what yeah. most stuff that isn't avant-garde comes under the rubric of avant-garde yeah. you know there's so much pretension attached to all of that that it gets you know that, that people who do it for real like steve martin look like anomalies when actually they're probably you know true to the the spirit of it. How many people have plans to go to France? Raise your hand. Okay, now listen. If you're going to France, let me give you a warning. In France, chapeau means hat. Rue means street. It's like those French have a different word for everything. They do it to screw you up. I'm not kidding. Yeah, if you fast-forwarded through this, it would look like a piece of performance art. It looks like stuff's happening. Weird stuff, just movement. There's, there's dance in it. He's yeah, he gets taken over by his own feet. The happy feet and joys. But everything. There, there are moments where, I, if you look away, it's a bit like the, the records again. If you look away from this and sort of you're doing something else, and you just hear this rolling laugh from the audience. You look back, mm. and usually he's walking towards the psych, and the audience are in tears of laughter at the him walking mm. because he's walking. He's chosen the funniest way to walk to the back of the stage. And it's, it's a total mastery of saying everything I do will be for your pleasure and confidently funny. Yeah. There's a brilliant moment of confidence where he gets heckled and someone in the audience shouts, You're nuts! <laughs> and without missing a fucking semi-quaver, he checks his nuts. <laughs> oh. I thought they were out. <laughs> Oh, I thought they were out. <laughs> I've seen this video 4,000 times, and today was the first time I thought, is that someone placed in the audience shouting your nuts? The joke is so good. It doesn't matter if it is, actually, and does I, it? That's that's, that was my response, going, if you place someone in the audience to shout your nuts and the joke that follows it is that good, <laughs> you're allowed to. <laughs> and he's so, you know... And he's such a good actor as well. You know, he's completely in the moment. You yeah. really, you know, I really believe he did think they were out then. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just... You know, I have figured out one thing that would totally put an end to show business, and that is if the human race, instead of having two arms, just had one arm right in the center of our body. Now, the reason that would put an end to show business, how would people clap? Be, hmm. I enjoy him. Oh. Kind of put an end to encores. Nobody's going to go, more. 
Did you have that? When you, I know you've seen this before as well. I think I may have shown this to you. Or lent yeah, it to yeah, you, you did. Yeah. And your reaction was the same as mine when I first saw it. It was going, oh my God, how much cocaine is in this man? I know what you're saying. You're saying, oh, I'll bet he's on drugs. There is no cocaine. Yeah, man. yeah, that's he true. He had an anxiety attack and when he was on a lot of pot and then swore off drugs. If you can believe his autobiography, he said never got a coke, never did. Yeah, no, I can pot. believe. I can't believe Steve Martin was ever much of a drug. He's he's a control totally. man, isn't he? I don't, Again, I don't it's, it's yeah. the magician him. in him. You don't go out on stage with yeah. a drink in you if you're a magician because the doves fall out of your sleeves. Yeah. Well, I'd just like to say right now, I don't take any drugs. I completely quit taking everything, and that includes getting small. Sure, that's easy for you to do. You haven't been through what I have been through. You see, about three weeks ago, I TS'd too small. But he's got that magician's sense of, I've rehearsed this. I know it's good because I've rehearsed it. He knows he's good. He just needs to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown and you go, oh, this guy's practiced. Let's play the banjo. On second thought, I'll play the banjo. It'd be too confusing if we all got up here. I'm sorry. Just can't do it. And I, I love that when he, when he does play the banjo on this video, his face transforms. Mm. You know, it, the, the mask does fall, and you just you see the not even the serious Steve Martin, just the Steve Martin face. Can't you know? Not even concentrating hard, and there's nothing. It just looks like real face of a man making music that he loves and it's a very different face yes mm. it sort of melts a little bit and it's not the same there's a clown steve martin and there's a musician steve martin it was interesting thinking of him coming from around the same period of time coming from the folk scene at the same time as we've often talked about this, the forgotten wing of British comedy is the folk scene and what it gave to British stand-up. Mike Harding, Billy Mike, Connolly. Jasper Carrot, those mm. guys who came through from there and went from the folk scene into comedy and then became storytellers and, uh, and did a different thing than telling mother-in-law jokes. That before alternative comedy, the folk scene completely turned British comedy upside yeah. down. And he definitely comes from that background of he's sort of hanging out with Glenn Frey and the Eagles and things. He definitely comes from a music background. He was, I think he went out Which with is another Ronstadt very sort of Did he? much more. Yeah, I think he dated Lyndon Ronstadt for about 10 minutes. Yeah, but yes, he's, he's from that kind of. I mean, you'd date Steve Martin if you were Lyndon Ronstadt, wouldn't you? That's a marriage of equals. Well, I'd date Steve I'd... Martin, I'm me. <laughs> <laughs> There's not anyone round this table who wouldn't date Steve Martin. Correct. Let's all date Steve Martin. Circumstances, what he offered. <laughs> Steve, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the thing that perhaps that you're alighting on when his face changes when he's playing the banjo is that that's a man who is deeply content in that moment, isn't he? Yeah. You know? he's that's very, what he looks, yeah, he's exactly yeah. what he looks he's, like. I mean, he's, he's obviously a very funny guy, and he's a very happy guy, and he's also a very content guy. You can see when he plays, you go, yeah, that's, that's someone who is very much in the moment, aren't they? Yeah. Very much enjoying what they're doing. And I think, I mean, he's having a great time on stage anyway, and he always seems to. I would urge everybody to look at the, his, I think it might be his first appearance on the Johnny Carson show from 1973 where he does a stand-up routine for dogs. <laughs> and again, that's another avant-garde thing, but one that is completely consumable by anybody, which is lovely. So it's avant-garde, but it lets you in straight away. But if you have a dog, call him over, let him sit in front of the TV screen, because I think you're going to see him crack up for the first time. 
And then he sits down with Johnny Carson and does a few card tricks. And they're all, none of them is actually a trick, although they all require the skills of a magician to get them across. <laughs> So well, you it's need like, to, it's like, like the Vegas Dawson routine, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the rhythm and the, yeah. and the look of it, but not quite the... Yeah. And you're, you're still going, hey. There's a nice right. I'm the idiot moment in the car trick routine as well, where he, he gets Johnny Carson to pick a card and then show it to the camera. And this is before he's had to go at guessing what it is. It's the 14 of spades. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's already gone wrong and he doesn't know yet. Well, actually, that's what this reminded me of. You were talking about listening to this as a calming thing, and I've always found Steve Martin to be a very warm, comfortable place to be when I'm nervous I I hum the, the Bernadette Peters song from the from the church to cheer myself up uh, I, 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 so I find him really primarily comforting against anxiety I, I think, I think that's partly just the, just the, the, the pleasure and the, the comfort that comes with watching someone watching any kind of expert yes basically. he's not going to fuck up yeah because there's an anxiety whenever... Weirdly, it's now become our national pastime that we watch every Saturday night, we watch people who are about to fuck up dancing or singing. And, you think, and I, feel like a, I feel like a stranger in my own land ever since reality TV and, and, and amateur stuff, you know, expansion yeah. things started because I do not want to see people trying their best I want or on their way up I want to see the finished product when they're not going to fail publicly and they're not going to embarrass themselves or me I can't bear it and I don't I don't understand people who can bear this kind of embarrassment yeah. either watching or, or laying themselves open to there, it there's a sheer pleasure at the beginning of Strictly Come Dancing when all the professional dancers come out and do a routine and you go nothing's yeah. going to go wrong it's, there's a you want to watch Fred and Ginger you want to watch people yeah. just smoothly doing it and there's what's odd about this that had never occurred to me until watching it this time was how much he has in common with other masters of this kind of stuff, but not from America. I suddenly thought of Tommy Cooper, I thought of Ken yeah, Dodd, yeah. I thought of Eric and Ernie, yeah, yeah. and I went, this is a variety routine that you could do in a music hall. It's quite a weird British music hall act, but something you've done again and again and again. And his use of magic, the candle routine, where he makes the candle disappear mm. in it, and, and you think for a second that's a great trick, and then his arm's out stiff. That's a Tommy Cooper gag. Yeah. And... It has the same primal, unarguable, I can't stop laughing feeling as watching Tommy Cooper. He's just got giggles in him um, and, the, and he wants to make you happy. Happy feet. I was like, that's a Ken Dodd routine. I've got happy feet. He's out there. You've had a rubbish day and you want to cheer up. He's also, even though he's not on drugs, he's the best person to entertain a stadium full of people off their tits. Yeah. Everyone out there, in the sound of this crowd, there are people on a lot of drugs out there. <laughs> And they're having the time of their life. Maybe that's why he's performing at the pace that he is, just to try and keep up with his audience. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everybody. Be courteous, kind and forgiving. Be courteous, kind and forgiving. Be gentle and peaceful each day. Be Being a man who can get on stage with a banjo gives him lots of places to go. He can do that lovely thing where he's rubbing the banjo up against the mic. Oh, God, that's a brilliant moment, isn't it? Oh, and he can do the thing. There's a lovely thing he does where he can't work out where the banjo is and his hand keeps missing. And, there's, and he used to do a trick where he'd tune the banjo painstakingly without touching any of the tuning pegs because his hand was six inches above it for ages. But he's got lots of things he can do. Any prop comedian, if you come on stage with a banjo, you've got something to do. But the other thing he can do is do a song. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the song on this is is one of his best songs. Be thoughtful and trustful and childlike. Be Be witty and happy and wise. Be witty and happy and wise. Be honest and love all your neighbours. Be honest and love all your neighbours. Be obsequious, purple and clairvoyant. Everybody sing. 
Yeah, because he sets it up. Yeah, it could go either way because he's doing the daft. You know, he's knocking the the strings against the lower <laughs> microphone as he's doing the sentimental stuff about how this was a song his grandmother taught him, and then he goes down here and, he's, and you know deliberately drowning himself out. And so you know, but after that, he you know, literally, it could work just as well if he had done yeah serious. Um, that's a bit like the um like not not arriving at the punchline going I'll keep the the tension up is a bit is yeah. is that it's sort of the same thing isn't it really is that he's you don't know what's going to come next you don't know whether this is going to be has he just undermined that serious moment for the joke because there's now a serious song or is this going to be a silly song yeah and it turns out to be both a serious song <laughs> and a silly song you're still being set up <laughs> yeah. it never yeah, ends yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Things you don't know about. The outlaw and have your knees removed. And you never know where the joke's going to come from. Whether it's because he's got this thing, he's verbally dexterous, he's got a load of voices, he's moving all the time, he's got props. You don't know which bit's going to make you laugh. So when he's telling you a serious song, it turns out to be the banjo knocking against the mic stand that the joke's yeah, going yeah. from. He surprised himself when he was exploring this in the first place. He, he realised that suddenly, sometimes the people were laughing at the words. And sometimes he said they were laughing at the end of my finger. And yeah. realising that everything had a place, mm. everything had the potential for comedy. Including drinking your water. You? <laughs> yeah. And now, of course, all it does is remind me of Trump not, actually not being able to drink it other than with, well, with you know, the leader of the free world not being able to drink it without using both hands. Cup, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything, everything can be funny is a lovely thing to watch. There's a... I mean, he says... And actually, when you see interviews with him and things, that he is, despite all this confidence, a shy man. He appears to be a man who is has an urge to perform, mm. but like a lot of performers, he's very, very shy and introverted and considered and thoughtful. And maybe that's what's comforting about this, is you're watching a display of what is effectively a confidence trick. He's showing you that inside this man is this enormous fountain of confidence from somewhere. It's really... It's really great to watch someone enjoy themselves. Yeah, coming out mm. to play, isn't it? It's nice. Yeah. That's a beautiful and then, way of putting it. And then, you know, and then he retreats into his mantle with his art collection and all these, you know, quiet, quiet things he does. I've seen him interviewed in a documentary about Ricky Jay, who was a brilliant, <clears throat> brilliant car magician yeah. who, who died very recently. And in that, Steve Martin is, first of all, he's sitting there, he's, he's, he's very quietly just shuffling a pack of cards in his hand as he thinks as a kind of in the same way that you might rub a rosary or something you know and he's talking very thoughtfully uh, and very gently about his friend Ricky Jay and what a brilliant magician he is and he's comparing him to um there was a there was a a juggler who used to do a routine with one ball and saying Ricky could do simplicity <laughs> really well and he's very very thoughtful and he's a million miles from the guy who's up on this stage being you know, being controlled by his feet and thrashing around like a—I mean, that must have been a physically exhausting hour to have done, mm. mustn't it? Then he's a million miles from so the guy who goes so on stage as well. All his, yeah, he's so physically capable. You yes. know, he when he was basically an acrobat, yeah, um, at one point. And his juggling's brilliant. He's juggling it? everything, and I'm sure he did a lot of his own stunts in the early, you know, especially in um, in the jerk when he's at the circus. I'm sure there was. Stuff that he was just incredibly physically capable. Again, it makes him feel like he's part of a tradition that goes back to musical. He feels like Chaplin or, or Stan Laurel or someone, someone who's trained in doing a load of skills. He is an entertainer. And there aren't a lot in the American tradition. You've got to look back at Donald O'Connor or someone. It's almost like feeling like mm. these people went into musical theatre or something. From that generation of stoner comics, 
he appears to be monstrously old-fashioned yeah. in his diligent approach to his craft. He's like avant-garde vaudeville, isn't yeah. he, basically? <laughs> plus Renaissance yeah. man. Plus the man, the man who keeps plus just model. walking into yeah. a bar. Yeah. You just keep walking into a bar, you know. That's it. I can understand why you would sit and, at moments of anxiety, just listen to Steve Martin. Because I suppose, as well, you just you hit his rhythm and it's really nice to just stay there. Yeah, and it has and, its own internal logic. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And he was very fascinated. Happy. He was fascinated with logic. He, he quotes Lewis Carroll a lot in, in his book, and sort of says he was fascinated that if you followed things logically, absurdism and logic were the same thing, which is Alice in Wonderland, which is yeah. you know, rigorous yeah. nonsense. He is one of the great American comics, but I keep finding anglophone, anglophile things in him. He feels like from the nonsense tradition. Well, he did marry a British woman first, of course, you see, which is what gave me hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, did he, did he me, me being, you know, almost indistinguishable from Victoria Tennant, I think yeah. we can all agree. So not yeah. just so comfort and hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a message. <laughs> what, a, what a guy. <laughs> what a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> but we've had a few laughs, and I think that's important, really. Please remember one thing. I am an experienced professional. Don't you try this at home. So we should also, in we should mention as a little coda, the f- short film that's bundled in with this on the on the VHS tape, which is the Absent-Minded Waiter, which is a tiny little masterpiece. It really is. It's choice. If you look for um, homage to Steve or Steve Martin Live 1979 video on YouTube or anywhere. Uh, and get the one-hour version of it. It's a 48-minute stand-up thing. There's a little 10-minute thing at the beginning of it. Uh, it's joyous. It's really nice. Uh, you won't see it coming. But it's just loads of Steve Martin. It's like an extra little... If you like The Jerk and Man with Two Brains, it's 10 minutes more of that. Yeah. Which you can't be argued with. But it's him and Carl Runner dicking it's about. quite brilliant. It's full of great brilliant. lines. And another piece of lovely writing, because one of the things about Steve Martin that's reassuring is he's quotable, and, mm. and he goes with you for the rest of your life. So you spend the rest of your life saying, stack ellipse. Yeah. I went to the Bahamas for Cold a moment. Lord Omelette. Just lovely turns of phrase that he can give you to, to cuddle to you whenever you Far need away. <laughs> Far away. Far away. I love it. He's dead. Yeah, he's, he's, he's spoke French. French. Help he's him. Dead. Help him. Donde esa la casa de Pepe. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, God. They feel nice in your mouth, don't they, they? Do. Steve Martin lines? Yeah. He's, he's actually got the, he's got the voice of a Muppet, hasn't he, weirdly? In the middle of this routine, he's just so done right. the Muppet show and he says... Hey, do you get the Muppets here, you guys? Because I think he's gone over to London oh, yes, to film the Muppet right. yeah, show. Filmed in London, isn't it? And he gets really excited. And he goes, he almost goes like, "Come!" He goes, "They're so cute." <laughs> he's he's in the Muppets. In, yes, he's the missing Muppet. Um, yes, Lucy, thank you for bringing a, a beautiful story about anxiety dealt with by <laughs> wild and crazy guys, uh, and giving us a chance to lust after the greatness. Yeah, of baby. Steve Martin. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. 